The views and opinions of this program are those of its host and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of 90.1 FM, KKFI, Midcoast Radio Project, or its staff and volunteers. Okay, thank you. Welcome to Jaws of Justice Radio on 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. It's Monday morning. My name is Terry. Today, Jaws of Justice is celebrating KKFI. It's our pledge drive. Listeners are aware that Jaws of Justice is produced weekly by KKFI volunteers and that we all need to support KKFI, our community radio station. We bring you vital information underserved or ignored by mainstream media, and KKFI is supported by our listeners. If you share KKFI's mission of providing an independent voice to music and information underserved or ignored by mainstream media, please consider becoming a sustaining member today. Host Margot Patterson is bringing us another special show, and her topic is race and policing in the shadow of Tyree Nichols. Reports on interaction between police and the public find that black residents are more likely to be stopped, threatened, and arrested by police than white or Hispanic residents. Black Americans comprise the majority of all individuals arrested in America at a rate greater than their proportion of the total population. Main drivers of these disparities include disproportionate levels of police contact with black Americans, residential segregation, and concentrated urban poverty. Margot's first guest is Professor Rashan Ray, a sociologist at the University of Maryland who studies race and policing. Then she'll speak with Steve Young and Winifred Jamison of KC Leap. Kansas City Law Enforcement Accountability Project is a community-based investigating and victim advocacy agency focused on local police violence, law enforcement accountability, and victim family support. Please stay tuned for discussion of the conflict and reform. This week, our calendar will only be available on our Facebook page or on the Jaws of Justice page at the KKFI website, kkfi.org. On Jaws of Justice, we examine how to find justice in our society. Now, to our show. This is the Jaws of Justice. I'm Margo Patterson. Rayshawn Ray is a professor of sociology and executive director of the Lab for Applied Social Science Research at the University of Maryland in College Park. His research addresses racial and social inequality, particularly as it applies to health and to police-civilian relations. He's worked with dozens of police departments, the Department of Homeland Security, and the U.S. military, and he's written about his research and his experiences in the Washington Post, the New York Times, Newsweek, The Guardian, and other publications. He is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Rayshawn Way, welcome to Jaws of Justice. Thank you so much for having me. The death of Tyree Nichols after he was beaten by police officers in Memphis has once again focused public attention on police brutality and the need to address it. Five police officers involved have been fired and charged with second-degree murder. Unlike George Floyd's murder, Tyree Nichols' death was not at the hands of a white policeman, but at the hands of officers who, like him, were black. I'm wondering what, if anything, can or should be drawn from the different circumstances of his death than from George Floyd's death. Well, I think, obviously, 
the, the level of brutality in the Tyree Nichols killing is something that people highlight. I mean, obviously with George Floyd, we watched him sit underneath Derek Chauvin's knee for several minutes until literally the air came out of him. One parallel, obviously, is that after Tyree Nichols was brutally beaten, he was literally just propped up as if he was a piece of furniture or trash to be thrown out for several minutes while not only police officers stood around, but also first responders. So we have these bad apple police officers, but then we also have a system at play. And when it comes to, say, comparing Minneapolis to, to Memphis as cities and as police departments, we see some differences, potentially some differences that Memphis has learned from. In particular, they were swift to, to terminate the police officers. It's important to note that Tennessee is a right-to-work state. So in that regard, they had uh, potentially a bit more liberties than what could have happened up in Minneapolis. And then, of course, we know they brought the family in to show the video. The officers then were charged criminally. They brought in the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation. The, the DA in Memphis moved swiftly. And then they released the video to the public. And I think by that point, people felt that there was a lot of transparency and also accountability for what those officers did in that moment. And then, of course, there were other officers and first responders that have been implicated and either fired or put on leave. So we see a different organizational response, a different city response. And I think that's also one of the reasons why we've seen a little bit of protest in Memphis, but overwhelmingly peaceful protest. Talk about the fact that the officers who killed Tyree Nichols were the same race. That has surprised a lot of people. How do you explain that? So our research at the Lab for Applied Social Science Research at the University of Maryland has found that uh, police officers' race and gender doesn't matter as much as people think that it does. We found that officers' attitudes and behaviors are quite similar in terms of what they think about criminality, in terms of what they think about Black people, and even uh, their behaviors, their language usage. Now, there, there is some research out of Chicago documenting that potentially black officers and women officers use less force, especially when they are from the area in which they are policing. I really view that as a place effect. In other words, you want to encourage having police officers who are from the area to really know the area and live in the area. And oftentimes, oftentimes that's happening in predominantly uh, white communities where officers live there and they're less likely to live in predominantly black communities. But I know that overall people are shocked at the level of violence and brutality that these officers were giving off to another Black person. But in the research that I've done and that I see on a regular basis, unfortunately, police officers brutalize people on a regular basis, some justified, some unjustified. And we have to keep in context that every single year, over 1,000 people are killed by police. And Black people are significantly more likely to be killed by police when they're not attacking and when they're unarmed. You've talked about the fact that law enforcement agencies are steeped in structural racism. Could you talk about structural racism in policing and what you think can be done to eliminate that? So structural racism is a term that academics use, systemic racism. Similarly, that speaks to the ways that racism is embedded in our rules, laws, procedures, and bylaws that govern us. When it comes to, to policing and law enforcement in the United States, it has deep roots in racism and white supremacy, dating back even before the founding of the United States, going all the way back to slave patrols, which were groups of people who would go around and try to recapture Black people who had 
fled enslavement, runaway slaves. And overwhelmingly, these were white people. But sometimes black people would be coerced to participate in that capturing process or, or even paid to do so, even, even if it was a small number of people. And law enforcement in the United States came out of that. It was about policing black people and protecting land. And in many ways, that legacy still continues to this day and speaks to one of the reasons why black people are over-policed. Law enforcement in the U.S. not only predated the founding of the U.S., but outlasted enslavement the, during slavery and then the end of it through Jim Crow, through the civil rights movement, through mass incarceration and up to this present movement for black lives. We've seen how law enforcement has lasted. Has it changed a lot? Sure. But the whole point is that on any given day, say before the Civil Rights Act was passed and after, the same police officers were there. Just like in 1968 when Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis, the same officers that were on the force before that day were the same ones on the force after that day. And so, I mean, you can put all of these things together. You see that the way that racism seeps into law enforcement is not only systemic and structural, but also cultural. I thought your article, Bad Apples Come from Rotten Trees in Policing, was very interesting. And some of the statistics you mentioned were quite fascinating. The one that stood out most to me was that Black teenagers are 21 more times likely to be killed by police than white teenagers. What accounts for that astronomical increase in the rate of killing of Black teenagers versus white teenagers? I mean, that's such a huge gap. I think it's hard for people to make sense of it. One way to think about it is that for every white teenager that's killed by police, 21 black teenagers are killed. A lot of people probably say, oh, this is because, you know, these black teenagers are more likely to engage in, in criminal activity. And that's not necessarily the case. Instead, it deals with, with over-policing and criminality and adultification of black teenagers, particularly black boys, but even black girls. In other words, people perceive black boys and girls as being older than what they actually are. There are a couple of really good examples of that. Take Tamir Rice in Ohio, who was killed playing with a toy gun in the park with his sister, and police officers showed up in less than three seconds and shot him dead in a public park. We can also look at the Trayvon Martin killing with George Zimmerman, who during the trial, George Zimmerman said, I thought he was older, referring to Trayvon Martin. And this speaks to the ways that Black bodies are perceived as being threatening, are perceived as being violent, and it heightens a level of, of threat and leads to individuals responding accordingly. And in this case, police officers perceiving that it takes more force or that they need to actually police Black people's bodies because they oftentimes perceive that they fear for, them for, fear for their lives, even if a Black person hasn't done anything wrong. If you're just tuning in, this is the Jaws of Justice. I'm Margot Patterson, and I'm speaking to Rayshawn Ray, a policing expert and a professor of sociology at the University of Maryland. One of your suggestions for reforming police is changing who pays for police misconduct. Right now, the taxpayers foot the bill for police misconduct. You've said that needs to change, that making police officers immune to the financial impact of their conduct is a mistake and that police department insurance should replace taxpayer money. Could you explain how what you advocate for would work? I don't really think people understand that each year, millions and millions of dollars in taxpayer money are spent on civil settlements for police brutality. These are not incidents oftentimes where police officers did something they should have done. These were, are oftentimes unjustified 
acts of brutality and really speaks to the Tyree Nichols situation where there's going to be a significant civil settlement that is going to go to his family. And that should be the case. But if we look at the amounts for other places, whether that be William Green in Prince George's County, Maryland, that was 20 million. The Breonna Taylor settlement in Louisville, the George Floyd settlement over $30 million in Minneapolis, the, the Corinne Gaines settlement in Baltimore, upwards of, of over $30 million. I mean, these are huge settlements that are being paid out coming from taxpayer money. What happens in this situation? Well, police officers and police departments are completely absolved from this, mostly due to qualified immunity. But there is a way to have police departments and police officers carry liability insurance. The state of Colorado is starting to do that, where officers carry liability insurance up to $25,000. The state of Texas has proposed legislation for officers to carry liability insurance. I think police departments also need to carry this liability insurance so that it doesn't fall on taxpayers. As people know from their own vehicle insurance and whatever ins other insurances they have, there are a lot of occupations, whether it be a plumber or an electrician, a lawyer, a physician where you need insurance, police officers should too, doesn't fall on taxpayers. It will create an accountability structure that will lead to other police officers policing each other. Whereas now there's very little accountability. And when officers do speak up and speak out, and there are more than people know, but they are oftentimes stigmatized internally. They are doing, they, what happens to them is what I call, they are pushed down and pushed out. So they are oftentimes more likely to be reprimanded, more likely to be demoted, less likely to be backed up, and more likely to be forced into an early retirement. So you put all this together, the insurance models, similar to what happens with uh, vehicle insurance, you do something wrong, and all of a sudden your insurance goes up. And then if you keep having accidents, guess what? You're not going to be able to be insured. And that's what would happen with law enforcement, that these bad apple cops like Derek Chauvin and some of these officers in Memphis would not even have been on the force to even do what they did when they ended up killing someone. Police unions are very powerful in this country. Do you think the police unions would go along with this change, one? And do you think policing can really change if police unions are not limited more in the power that they exercise? Police unions, the Fraternal Order of Police is extremely powerful and unions are important and they've been important for law enforcement to think about wages, to think about health and time off, things that are important for officers to be able to serve and, and, and better interact with the public. But at the same time, there are a lot of scholars and political pundits who believe that the FOP has overextended its reach. And accordingly, some of these contracts are quite one-sided and don't really benefit the community in the way that they should. I think that the Fraternal Order of Police should be obviously part of the conversation, but should also play a role in the insurance model. I mean, they currently pay, pay dues. The officers that I know don't want these bad apple cops on their force either. And in the case of, say, what happened in Minneapolis, different from Tennessee being a right-to-work state, that, look, police chiefs and other officers, they know who, who the cops are that they don't want around, and it's hardly nothing they can do about it. This would actually change it give them more ability to control things, help them to play a bigger role in certification, which I think should really happen at the federal level to have certification and decertification to create these bad Apple databases. And overwhelmingly, Republicans and Democrats both agree on that, on, on these parts. When it comes to the liability insurance model, there are some differences there, but the upside is, is simply in the results. If we look at the state of Colorado and we look at other areas that are aiming to enhance accountability, for what's happening.
You've written that police brutality is bad for your health, even when you don't experience it. Could you talk about that? This is what my colleagues and I call illness spillovers of police violence. That if people who live in neighborhoods that are over-policed with higher number, a higher number of police killings and police brutality, it literally harms their health. Men's mental health suffers. They are more likely to be depressed, more likely to suffer from anxiety, and women's physical health suffers. They are more likely to have cardiovascular disease. They are more likely to uh, have high blood pressure and also more likely to be obese, controlling for everything under the sun. And this isn't just uh, black residents who live in cities or, or in communities. This is everyone that is exposed to police violence. Not only do we see trickle-down policing in terms of brutality, that if someone has been killed by the police and is one of these units like the Scorpion unit, that there are other individuals who have been brutalized. But then you have these illness spillovers of police violence that literally harm us all. And police officers aren't immune either. Their mental health really, really suffers. 80% of them suffer from chronic stress. You put it all together, hurts people, hurts people, and it really leads to the collateral consequences of policing that ends up with someone like Tyree Nichols dead when he should be alive and simply going to his mama's house um, to, to enjoy her company on the weekend. Body cameras were initially touted as a way to curb police violence, but the police officers who beat Nichols to death wore body cameras, and for much of the time, the cameras were on. Why do you think that didn't matter? Do people forget they have cameras on? So I, I think cameras matter a lot. It's completely bipartisan support for including them, and then it's support by the public and police officers. I think people perceive that cameras potentially do more than they do. Like, cameras record things. They highlight things. They show us stuff. And without video, we wouldn't even be having this conversation about Tyree Nichols and, and even George Floyd. It should be noted that it's not just body-worn camera footage that matters, but it's other footage, whether it be a teenager recording on the side of the street, seeing something that she knows isn't right, or whether it be a street camera actually recording an incident, giving us a bird's eye view to just how egregious and brutal Tyree Nichols was murdered. So we put all of this together. Body-worn cameras are doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing. What we need more of is additional accountability to further bolster and utilize that video evidence. But make no mistakes, the video evidence really, really matters. But people do experience trauma from seeing that over and over again. That's part of those illness spillovers. But, it does, but video does matter. And in Memphis, there also needs to be a community oversight board where they literally have voting power and subpoena power within police departments. That's what Nashville is doing. That is the way that policing and community policing really starts to work together instead of people perceiving and actually experiencing in many ways a policing state. Rayshawn Ray, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Rayshawn Ray, a professor of sociology and executive director of the Lab for Applied Social Science Research at the University of Maryland in College Park. Support for KKFI provided by the Folly Theater, presenting trumpeter, educator, radio host, and UMKC graduate Herman Mahari at 8 p.m. Saturday, February 18th, as part of the Folly Jazz Series. Mahari and his quartet will perform music from his latest album, Asmara, as well as from his debut album, Blue. More information and tickets available at follytheater.org or by contacting the box office at 816-474-4444. This is Terry Wilkie. You're listening to Jaws of Justice, and it's uh, the first 
Monday of our pledge drive for the winter pledge drive, I want listeners to know you can call us now at 888-931-0901. That's 888-931-0901. Now, I'm, jo- I'm a volunteer here, and I'm joined by two other volunteers. We've got Margo Patterson. Margo, that was a great interview you just did with Rashawn Ray. Well, I thought Dr. Ray was just really interesting. I had no idea that, you, you know, there would be health effects to uh, police brutality, even for people who have not experienced that brutality, that it spreads in the community. I well, mean, I, for one, could not watch any part of the violence. I, I would never take a, a single look at it. We're also joined by Elaine McMillan. Elaine, thank you for coming on to help us pitch so you're a regular listener to Jaws of Justice, aren't you? I am a regular listener. So I started volunteering here at KKFI a few years ago. And one thing I did was volunteer to sit at the front desk where I greet people and help with office things. And it was during Jaws of Justice. And I realized I recognized a familiar voice, and that was David Bell, who is one of the rotating hosts. And David Bell has a special place in my heart because he was my brother's public defender um, when my brother was um, arrested and sent to prison. And so I connect to Jaws of Justice because I have a family member who's in prison. And I really appreciate the programming and all of the different things that are brought out for families of people who have loved ones in the prison system and um, the help that that, that, that's out there for people who are able to get out and have, have wonderful, productive lives, I'm all about it. So I think it's one of the best things on KKFI, and I talk about it all the time. And this is your chance, listeners, to show us your support. You can call us at 888-931-0901. We have an anonymous donor, a champion match this hour, Someone who prefers not to be named is going to match the first $100 that we receive. And that doesn't have to be a payment from any one of you for $100, although that would be great. We wouldn't wouldn't say no to that. But 10 people could call with $10. Absolutely. And our champion will match that and make it worth $200 to KKFI. You can go online, Jaws of Justice radio hours facebook page has a kkfi fundraiser that's an easy click yeah and you can go to kkfi's facebook page you can go online at kkfi.org so margo have you ever considered being a sustained giver well i give during the um, pledge drives because i want to support the programs that i'm involved with and I want people at KKFI to know that I'm supporting those particular programs. I guess it's no secret. It's true. We do have kind of a competition. So <laughs> shows are tracked by the hour. That People who call to show their support during that show, then everyone at the radio, the program evaluation committee, they think better of that show because people are listening. Certainly... We always broadcast. We broadcast every Monday from 9 to 10. 
into the still air and we never get any feedback about people are listening. I trust people are listening. I know people are listening. And during well, we the know pledge Elaine drive, is listening. That's right. Yeah. Elaine. I, well, during the pledge drive, this is your chance to show us that you're listening by simply picking up that phone and calling us now, 888-931-0901. We have a new T-shirt. You can become a sustained giver for as little as $10 a month, which mm -hmm. really is a reasonable payment. And you'll get used to that when you see your bank account. You say, oh, well, oh, sure. Yeah. That's an easy way. And actually, I do it both ways because I like to, when I'm at the fun drive, I get excited and I want to help especially meet those champion challenges. So I watch for places where my money is going to have the most effect. But I also became a sustaining giver. One of the reasons was I probably wanted the sweatshirt or whatever the thing was because we always have something really cool like our shirt that we have this time that's celebrating our 35 years on the air in Kansas City Community Radio. I want to jump in here because Terry was just reminding me, and you just reminded me, that this is a kind of celebratory time with mm -hmm. the Chiefs winning the Super Bowl. Oh, yeah. And I think we want to celebrate Kansas City. And one of the great things we have here is vital community radio. And that's something not every community has, but anybody can come here and join, become a programmer, uh, eventually mm -hmm. have their own program. And I think there's just such interesting programming on KKFI. I have listened to a couple of shows in my car, and I just learned things that I would never have learned otherwise. It's the truth. We're going to have a great second part with KC Leap, so we have a pre-recorded pitch, and stay tuned. Hi, this is Angus Finnan, Executive Director of Folk Alliance International. The importance of radio for me growing up was uh, like the stitches in a, a fabric keeping something together. As a kid on a farm, it was uh, a window out into the, the real world beyond uh, the farm in the small town that I knew. And as an artist uh, traveling, touring uh, across North America, it became a, a touch point. And those college radio, community radio, and public radio stations uh, although the, the subject matter might change, the, the voices and names might change, the, the essence was always the same. And it was the celebration of all the things that were happening in the community. And uh, it didn't take long to listen into whatever station in whatever town and feel like, oh, well, if I lived here, I'd listen to this station and I'd be part of the community. And uh, from the very beginning up to this day uh, continues to, to remind me that there's a very simple way to gather people. All you have to do is turn on the radio, whether you're standing at the kitchen sink or out in the garage or, or driving, driving through some strange town, and you get to uh, pick up on the spirit of whatever's local. Radio for the people and by the people. That's KKFI, your local community radio station. Please join us. Call. Pledge your support. 888-931-0901. That's 888-931-0901. Radio connects us all. Keep that connection strong. Let's hear from you right now. Justice, I'm Margot Patterson. This second half of the program, like the first, was really sparked by the killing of Tyree Nichols. Joining me today to talk about policing in Kansas City are local activists Winifred Jamison and Steve Young. They are the founders of the Friday Night Protest, an organization that evolved out of the protest in Kansas City over the killing of George Floyd. 
Every Friday at 6 p.m., the two of them join other activists in front of the Kansas City Police Department headquarters downtown and read aloud the names of the people killed by Kansas City Police. More recently, Steve Young and uh, Winifred Jamison founded the Kansas City Law Enforcement Accountability Project, otherwise known as Kansas City LEAP, an effort to create more police accountability and to help the families of those who have died at the hands of police violence. Well, Winifred Jamison and Steve Young, welcome to the Jaws of Justice. Thank you for having Thanks us. Thanks for having us. I am embarrassed to say that up until 10 days ago, I was not aware of the Friday night protest or Kansas City Leap. Let's start with the first, how did the Friday night protest come about? Uh, it was during the, um, the George Floyd protest down at the plaza. We did join a lot of the protests down there. However, we knew that we had a police violence problem here in Kansas City. And it was terrible what happened with George Floyd, but we wanted to raise awareness of our local victims that had been killed by our local police department. So we decided to take the protest to the Kansas City, um, Kansas City Police Department's headquarters. Um, and that's kind of where we started. Uh, it, it was actually a daily thing at first, but that was really too aggressive <laughs> for everyone. Uh, so we then started to just do it every Friday. And we chose six o'clock because we felt like that was a time where folks was were usually getting off of work or work had the time from work to travel downtown if they wanted to protest with us and um, it just became a thing where it evolved into where we started to read the names um, we started to gather a lot of the information on all the folks who had been killed the dates um, how they were killed their age and um, we just started to do a, a more in-depth research on the uh, local victims you know so that's it sounds like you two were well aware of the problem of police violence even before the murder of george floyd how did you happen how did you come how did that come about um i actually have a friend whose son uh, james mcneil jr was killed by kcpd in 2003. 2003. Sorry, Steve is our data expert. Um, and uh, I worked with her at the public defender's office and I um, saw what she went through. Um, it completely changed her life, of course. I saw the process. Um, I saw the way that the investigation was handled. And um, she never received justice um, for the murder of her son. I saw the lack of support. Uh, that there was for her because her son was a victim of police violence, not of, you know, any other act of violence that people would normally gain support for um, had they been victims um, in our city, and um, and started to do a deep dive into the other other victims and realized that we had a police violence problem here, and um, I was uh, on the ground in Ferguson briefly. And um, after Ferguson came back and continued to do research, we had a bit of a, move, a movement there for a while, um, supporting local victims, and then it kind of died off. Um, but then when uh, Mr. Floyd was murdered, um, that kind of gave us the ability to kind of uh, re-energize that, that movement against local police violence. I should mention for people who don't know that, that Winifred 
now works for uh, a local, an elected official, but in the past she was an investigator in the public defender's office. So you- For 13 years. Got some firsthand knowledge. I do. So what do you, uh, what do you want the fr Friday night protest to achieve? Well, what Friday night protest is there for now is really just awareness and keeping the names alive. Um, it's more symbolic now. We go out there to read the names. We know that the, the building that we're standing in front of have cameras with audio. So the police actually have to hear the names read every Friday. I, I believe that that's very powerful because those are names that they're trying to, um, to suppress and, and they want people to forget. You know, they would really like for people not to know about that history of KCPD. But um, at this point, Friday night protest is just there as support for the victims' families. A lot of the families who we have gotten to know, they do appreciate us being out there every Friday and keeping their loved ones' names alive. You know, so that's kind of where we are with Friday night protest. Um, mm -hmm. And we branched out with KC Lee to actually do more of the work to actually try to um, to make a, a dent in this movement and to hold some accountability when it comes to um, the Kansas City Police Department. Well, talk to us about Kansas City Leap, which you all started after the Friday night protest. And I should mention that I think the Friday night protest has been going on for how long now? It may will be our third three-year anniversary. I think it is incredible that you still that you get people out there every Friday night because it is hard. <laughs> to keep people motivated, I think. Um, who are the people who join you there, and how do you, how do you all stay motivated? Um, Steve, you take that one. Well, there, there are folks who are a part of the Friday night protest group. They do come out, but there are people all around Kansas City who know about Friday night protests. They actually, they, um, they're on our Instagram. Um, they follow us on Instagram, Facebook, um, and it's just become a thing where they know that Friday night protests will, someone will be there every Friday at six o'clock. So we'll have random people who would just show up because they, they know it's going on and they want to be there for support. They love when we read the names and then when we go down to the detention center and we give uh, words of affirmation to the people who are locked up in cages. You know, so they love to see that. It's very power powerful when we go to, to the detention center and you see the folks turn the lights off and on and they're banging on the windows. Um, they're, you know, they're giving us, you know, the heart with their hands, you know, because they love seeing us come down there and hearing us try to uplift them, you know, because they're going through some, some hard times, you know, mm -hmm. sitting in a detention center. And we, we have a few diehards that come out almost every Friday. Um, you know, uh, big up to Rachel and Jesse in particular, yeah. Chris and Winston. Chris and, Winston. <laughs> and, then, and then like Steve says, we'll just have random people that'll just show up because they know we're gonna be there. That is really interesting. Well, talk to us about Kansas City Leap. When did you all start that? And, uh, and it's a fascinating project, so tell us about it. Um, 
Well, initially, so we there was a police-involved shooting um, in our own neighborhood. We live in the historic Northeast. There's actually been two in our immediate neighborhood. And um, we um, got the alert that this had happened, and we decided to go down there and observe uh, the scene. And what we saw was unsettling. We saw the Missouri Highway Patrol, who was supposed to be the investigating agency of KCPD, giving high fives and shaking hands and embracing um, members of the Kansas City, Missouri Police Department. We saw them, the way that they interacted with, uh, with people seemingly disinterested of talking to certain witnesses. Um, and it was just, it was a really stark observation um, to, see for the first time firsthand how this investigate the, the investigation process happens right. we did not feel that, that it was an, that uh, from our perspective it was not an objective investigation as it should be and you know I uh, talked to I looked at Steve and I was like you know I, I I did this for 13 years I think we could do this and so um, and then the opportunity, um, you know, Steve right. says the opportunity to connect with the I, community. I lost that opportunity. There was a lot of uh, there was a lot of people around who actually we don't know if they had seen anything, if they um, right. if they were witnesses, and we lost that opportunity to be able to communicate with those folks and just have a dialogue. Right. And. But what we did find out, though, is that neighbors did start to contact me, and yes. they said, hey, we, what, what the police are saying happened is that's not what we heard. That's not what we saw. And so um, I already had a connection with the head of the Excessive Use of Force Unit at the prosecutor's office, and I contacted him, and he said, have them call me. And lo and behold, that connection was made, so they were able to get a better to get better insight because the the Missouri Highway Patrol had not bothered to do an area canvas. And so um, we uh, decided that was our first kind of... Right. We started talking with folks within our Friday night protest organization, and we pitched that ideal to them. And a lot of people kind of grabbed onto it and said, yes, I think we can do this. Right. And so, we, so then what we did is we split up Casey Lee and Friday night protests. Casey Leap is its own organization. It's not a protest group. It's solely, we're, we're there to investigate the police and to hold them accountable. So we have to actually move completely different than Friday night protest. Uh, Friday night protest is there uh, to really, to, to let out our frustrations, to, you know, our, our pain, our struggle. Um, Casey Leap is there to do one specific thing, which is to work within the system to hold officers accountable. Well, I know you have a hotline for people to call to report police brutality, and I think that's on your website. I wonder if you want to give your website just so that people... Our website is kcleap.org. Well, that's pretty easy for yes. people to remember. <laughs> well, let me... <clears throat> Let me they ask have, you about your rapid. Re oh, I'm sorry. Right. Go ahead. So yeah, and so the hotline is eight one six four seven seven L E A P. Oh, 
And so that is a, that's a hotline for any, right now, because of our capacity, we can only handle um, excessive use of force complaints within uh, Kansas, the Kansas City, Missouri Police Department. We do uh, have the ability to refer anyone to, um, we have a list of, of, of competent legal counsel that have uh, worked on these kinds of cases that we refer them to, social services, things like that. But we're only able to, uh, right now, currently um, work on actual uh, Kansas City, Missouri involved shooting or involved for uses of force well <clears throat> talk to me about the investigations your rapid response team that goes and canvasses the area and talks to witnesses or tries to get information i'm very curious about that i've heard that it can be difficult to get witnesses to talk about crimes they've seen or know something about i would think that it might be particularly difficult in the case of officer involved incidents have you found that so? And how do you go about earning people's trust? Well, you know, that's why KC Leap, we pride ourselves with being a multicultural uh, organization because we know that when it comes to police involved shooting or excessive, uh, excessive use of force, um, it's not just black folks that are actually getting the brunt of this, even though it is disproportionately done by, you know, against black folks. Um, we never know who we're actually going to go out and talk to, you know, so it's always good to have representation, you know, for uh, any type of community that you're going to actually go to. When we were um, dealing with uh, Leona Hale, when she had gotten shot by the police um, and we were doing our investigation, there were several folks who I knew personally, I couldn't really talk to. So I just kind of stood back and I let Wynn handle it. You know, and we you have to you have to kind of be able to read the uh, the situation and read the people that you're actually you know you're 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 approaching. So we do have a policy um, in that we will um, keep we will not disclose anyone's name or contact information if they choose if they want to remain anonymous. Um, that is paramount to the work that we do. And yes, it is difficult because you are dealing with the police, and there is. Um, there is a fear in our community against KCP, with KCPD that I don't think people truly understand. Um, and so it, it has been difficult. We have had witnesses that have, you know, uh, asked to remain anonymous and we have not divulged their information. Um, but because of the support systems also that we've developed for victims and other folks, um, we, we build, uh, we build, we just work on building a relationship. Yes. We don't say, hey, you need to go tell the, you know, you need to go re report this immediately, or we just work on building that relationship, building trust, and that's, that's usually how we've been able to get people to come forward. And sometimes it is a lengthy process, but um, yeah. I, it is, it's, it's all about trust, and they know that we're, and they know that we are a community-based organization. We have to let them know, if, you know, immediately that we're we're not the police because they will ask us, you know, are you the police? You know, because we're coming up trying to question them or ask questions, and we do have to let them know that no, we're we're just a community-based organization. We're trying to let your voice be heard. And not only are we not the police, we do not work with the police. The only aspect of law enforcement that we do work with, and we will never divulge any information to, the, to any police department, is exclusively the excessive use of force team. 
within Jackson County who prosecute these police officers. That's it. And that's at the prosecutor's office? Jackson County Prosecutor's Office. And do the police know of your work and do you... Do the police know of your work and uh, what's been their attitude or their response? They don't really have to respond, do they? They don't. We don't have local control. You know, so they they are so brazen when it comes to that. And um, just like Chief Graves right now, you know, there's a um, there's a case that she could actually make a huge response on if she would just hold those officers accountable. And, and let the community know that she's actually doing something as the new chief of police. But however, she's silent on this case. And we haven't heard anything. These officers who actually um, slammed, body slammed body slammed a person on their head, um, they are still police officers. Nothing has been done which to we, these police which officers. Which we were there when it happened. We, we witnessed ourselves yes. and captured on video. And have those officers been able has anything been done about those officers? Were you able to lodge a complaint with the prosecutor's office? The prosecutor's office is currently investigating those cases. And not, my understanding is not only are they considering prosecuting the officer who's, who committed the act of violence, but also the, uh, there are several officers who falsified the police report around the incident. And my understanding is that there is a possibility of the prosecutor's office uh, filing um, charges at, against them for falsifying police report, which would be a first. Steve, you mentioned that at the Friday night protests, you're there, you and Wynn and others are there every Friday night. Have the have any of the police officers ever come to talk to you about your <laughs> protests or just to kind of no. engage in conversation? No, no, no police officer except for once when um, Chief Maben was the interim uh, police chief, he walked outside and he had a discussion with us. Um, I don't know how productive it was, you know, because when it comes down to it, you know, he's still a police. He he wants he wants us to understand his views, but it's very hard for them to actually come down to the community's level and understand the community, and not and not have the um, the ideal that it's them against us. You know, because that's where a lot of the violence comes comes from. It's not coming from a space where they swore to protect. It's them thinking it's they're they're in a fight against us, and and we're in a fight against them. You know, what kind of changes would you like to see at the Kansas City Police Department? Well, first of all, of course, we need local control. I mean, everybody knows that. Yes. Um, we'd like to see them to start holding their officers accountable. We'd like to see the Office of Citizen Complaint actually investigate these cases. And they need to have an outside investigating agency. You can't have the police continue to investigate themselves. I mean, it just it doesn't work. Um, one of our most recent clients' cases, the, the man who was body slammed on his head, um, filed a complaint with the OCC, and nothing was done. Nobody believed him. And there was video, even from the convenience store. But nobody took the time to investigate that. So that's, that's just, what about you, Steve? That's, I agree, I agree. That's just a start with. That's the start. That's just a start. We would need more time to, <laughs> <laughs> to give more information, yes. Well, I've been here talking to Winifred Jameson, Steve Young, about Kansas City Leap 
the Law Enforcement Accountability Project. And I know Campaign Zero, which is one of the national organizations that studied this, has said this is one of the most innovative programs that they know of in the nation. So I want to applaud you for what you're doing. And I hope people will go on your webpage, check you out, maybe join your efforts. And thank you so much, Yes, Wynn and Steve. Thank you. OK, thank you. What are you going to say? enjoyed today's show and that we leave you with something to think about, something to talk to your neighbors about, and a reason to get involved. As always, the opinions expressed are those of the host and the guests of Jaws of Justice Radio, not of KKFI, the Midcoast Radio Project Incorporated, its staff or volunteers. You can find our calendar of events and a link to our show episodes on the Jaws of Justice Radio Facebook page. You can always listen to us live and find our podcast on the KKFI website, kkfi.org. If you have a show idea or want to help produce the show, you can send an email inquiry or comment to kkfi.org forward slash contact. This is Jeff reminding you our outro music is Higher Ground from the Playing for Change CD. Please tune in for the rest of our 9 a.m. weekday lineup with the Law and Disorder on Tuesday, Alternative Radio on Wednesday, Cowtown Conversations on Thursday, and Between the Lines at 9 a.m., followed by Understanding Israel-Palestine at 9.30 a.m. on Fridays. Up next is Monday Morning Medicine Show with Dr. Mike. And at noon, Arts Magazine with Michael Hogue. Stick around for jazz and blues in the afternoon and Eco Radio KC at 6 p.m. Then round out your day south of the border with Fiesta Musicale, This is Professor Howard Zinn. The independent, non-commercial radio station you're listening to is really important in the maintenance of democracy. Thomas Jefferson once said, an informed democracy will behave in a reasonable manner. So if you care about being informed, if you care about democracy, if you're a reasonable person, you are, of course. Please support your source for uncensored news and views and the voice of your community. Hello, I'm Kelly Doherty, the new Director of Development and Communications at KKFI. I'm asking you to show your support of KKFI this pledge drive by either picking up the phone and dialing 888-931-0901 
or by getting online at kkfi.org and clicking the donate button in the top right-hand corner. Every bit helps support KKFI, our community radio. You're listening to 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio.